Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm flying solo for this intro. That's because we're doing things a little bit differently this week thanks to Donald J. Trump, who, instead of shitting off as we've repeatedly requested, visited the UK. And because a huge swathe of Britain is made up of absolute smashers, he was greeted by one hell of a protest. Man, I love this country sometimes. Later on, you can hear Hannah chatting with actor Catherine Parkinson, probably best known as Jen in the IT crowd, and director Tamara Harvey about the play Home I'm Darling. Hannah and I catch up with the awesome Lauren Livesey of the Bronte Parsonage Museum to celebrate the bicentenary of Emily Bronte's birth. And all three of us stare in awe at sporting legends Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, who came in to chat all things hockey, including the Games World Cup, which starts on Saturday the 21st of July. But first, back to that incredible protest. Yep, on Friday, the Women's March London dominated the streets of the capital, and our Hannah Dunleavy and Jen Offord were there with a microphone to chat to some of the brilliant women marching in protest, including Gabby Edlin of Bloody Good Period, Ashlyn B., Liz Carr, Samantha Baines, Patty the American Tourist, and as Hannah noted, great name for a band, Mara Clark of Abortion Support Network, Alice Jennings of Action Aid, Sadi Abdi from Action Aid Somaliland, Violent Mathiga, and Aisha Hazarika. And ahead of the march, I spoke to Huda Jawad, one of its organisers, about what the main aims of the rally were. So, without further ado, cue some bloody excellent birds. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Huda Jawad, who is the co-organiser of the Women's March London. Now, when you listen to this, the Women's March London will have already happened on Friday, basically to cock a snook to Donald J. Trump, who is making a flying visit to the UK. But I managed to get Huda before that to chat about why they were holding the march, what their aims were, and what she thought would be the best case scenario in the future. So, Huda, hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Tell us a little bit about the march. Obviously, I'm chatting to you beforehand, but there's been there's been a big run-up for you to organise this, right? Yes, it's been a really difficult and steep learning curve, <laughs> but it's really done with a very kind of clear and focused aim in mind. So it's been absolutely worth it. We've had many, many, many weeks now of late-night meetings, Skyping and Google Hangout-type conversations relating to the hours, trying to kind of finalise strategy, who's on board, what is appropriate to say, what kind of thing, who we want to be involved, why we want people to be involved and how to involve them in a really joyous, hopeful form of resistance that isn't just a glib sort of equality for all, yay, or it can be quite a depressing subject, particularly when looking at the array of hideous messages coming from the Trump administration. So we wanted to kind of say to people that there is something really positive you can do. So it's just about communicating that in a way that takes account of a rally and a march in summer. Please, can you tell us a little bit about who you do want to be involved and and what you see as the aim of the march? Okay, so we are a coalition of over 35 organisations, mainly kind of uh, women's-led organisations, but we have also the um, well-known NGOs like Amnesty International, Oxfam, Action Aid, and also EVO, which is the End Violence Against Women and Girls Coalition in the UK. We've got grassroots organisations, refugee women organisations, and also um, organisations like Liberty, working on equality and rights and Stonewall, etc. The idea is to create a space that engages people, uh, a coalition of people, an array of people, 
on social justice issues with particular regards around centered around gendered forms of violence and gendered forms of abuse an approach or a space that holds all these organizations who may see a shared goal but may not necessarily agree as to the means or the finer details or the nuances so that's uh, number one is to kind of bring together a coalition of organizations and people's a combination of grassroots movements but also much more formalized structures that lobby for equality rights um, gender-based rights that lobby internationally our, our government domestically and also work on a grassroots level in the UK and aim is to kind of give a, a channel where people can direct their energies their righteous anger their their outrage at the really unhelpful and divisive rhetoric that's been coming from the White House recently really really um, is he uh, saying some stupid stuff <laughs> Apparently, apparently <laughs> these things are all new to us in this country. What we have Donald Trump to thank for, if there is anything, is the idea that he has galvanised a range of people who would not necessarily kind of find common grounds on the day-to-day nuances of doing things. But we've all kind of come together to realise that voicing our outrage, and it's a physical demarcation of a red line to say, these are our values, these are our beliefs that we adhere to, and what you're saying is in total and utter contrast to what we believe and what we think is acceptable. Because ultimately, the international community and the political system has utterly failed to communicate that. He really is an enormous dick splash, isn't he? Yeah, well... You can say that, but I think he's just, um, I just despair. I just really despair because it, it makes, I cannot compute it in my head how we got here. How can the great American public move from Obama to, to Trump in one breath? And the unbelievable global impact that kind of style of leadership has on people that he will never ever meet and doesn't even realize exist. But they unfortunately, will know all about him and they will feel the impact of his policies and his rhetoric wherever they are in the world. The fact that Trump can say what he says with impunity, the fact that he can get away, it seems, with so outspokenly being misogynistic and abusive towards women, the fact that he can say the most racist and uh, xenophobic of things, the fact that he is happy for children to be caged when they're running away from their families, from poverty, from human rights abuses, and nobody's doing anything about it. No one in the liberated, progressive, civilized, enlightened West is batting an eyelid. The most we get is half-baked condemnations about, oh, well, that's not the way we do things, etc., etc. And I think people are just generally disengaged from the political process because it feels like being in, the, the, our political actors just not not with it. They don't have a finger on the pulse. They have no pulse, in fact. So <laughs> it feels like people have got to do it for themselves. And I think Women's March London is a reflection of that because we were born out of the Women's March in the US. And, he, you know, his election galvanised women globally. You know, this is not just the quaint British people are being upset by you, but there is a you know, a, a global outcry of bringing the noise to Trump to say, not on our watch, mister.
What we stand for is human rights, equality, justice, an intersectional feminist movement, a recognition that we all have a rightful place in society purely because we exist. And that's the aims of the of the of the noise that we're making. That was amazing. <laughs> I'm grinning. <laughs> Yay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and what happens after the march? Where do you go from from now, I suppose, because this will go out. Yeah. So um, we're we are really keen to ensure that we keep the carnival of resistance going. So immediately oh, I after that. The news... I love that. Carnival <laughs> of resistance. Yes. Sign me up. Yes. We're going to try and get feedback from people in terms of what do you think the next strategy is for Women's March? Because Women's March London has been a very organically sort of evolving movement. We have no formal structure. We have no funding. We're just basically eight women that have full-time jobs and some of us have children, some of us have partners, some of us have cats. Uh, and we are going to kind of sit down together and kind of really formalise what our objectives are for the next six months, 18 months, in five years, and what kind of things that we're, we'll be involved in. Because ultimately, we are a coalition, so that the, our members have been doing this work for a lot longer than we have. And our role has been thus far is to elevate their voices and give them a platform to articulate these experiences and their knowledge and their campaigns. So therefore, we do not want to step on anyone's toes or recreate the wheel. But what we want to do is find a way in which we can in, continue engaging these organisations, possibly grow the coalition, but find ways in which we can platform the very voices that are very easily and most frequently silenced by that kind of rhetoric that we've been seeing from America and anywhere else and that where far-right groups have taken over in Europe, unfortunately. I thank you for your hard work and wish you luck. We're going to keep banging the drums as well. We're all about making the noise. Oh, cool. for that. Fantastic. The idea is to bring noise, to bring glitter, to bring lots of colour to ensure that whilst we are absolutely caring about issues like Grenfell, immigration, Yarlswood, violence against women and girls, upskirting, all these things are horrific on their own, but brought together in one space, they can crush you. But what we want to do is resist that through carnival, through song, through dance, through joyfully existing and resisting. Because, you know, if, if your oppressor sees that you are happy to exist and are actually expressing that in a joyous fun loving way then you know their the attempts at breaking you down are that much less hi hannah here we're outside the bbc in portland place at the start of the women's march in london for trump's visit hello okay let's go and find some interesting people to talk to Hello, I'm Gabby Edlin and I'm from Bloody Good Period, which I founded in October 2016. We are at bloodygoodperiod.com or we're on Twitter and Instagram, just search Bloody Good Period. And we give asylum seekers, refugees and people who can't afford them menstrual supplies. That includes pads, toiletries, shower gel, baby wipes, everything that you need basically to have a bloody good period. We're here because we're feminists, so obviously we're anti-Trump. But also, we know that Trump really doesn't like periods and we know that he told Megyn Kelly she was bleeding out of her wherever. And we know that he's made other comments about them being disgusting. So we thought we would come here and uh, show them how disgusting we really are um, <laughs> with our red towel. We know that he doesn't care about women. We know he doesn't care about asylum seekers. We know he actively makes life terrible for asylum seekers, for women, for refugees, for young people. So we're here to counter that. 
So somewhere in this crazy packed crowd, we've bumped into comedian Ashling B. Hello, how are you? Very nice to meet you here. <laughs> what, what are you guys doing here? Same old, same old? Same old, same old. Just trying to get a bit of shopping done in Oxford Street. <laughs> yeah. What about you? I'm here with two groups, really. I was with the Help Refugees team and now with the Women's Equality Party, who are creating a big card which says, thank you very much, Donald Trump, for all that you're doing for women. Uh, in America. It's very sad. I spent a lot of time in America and it's very sad to see how many of my lovely friends and sisters over there are having their rights slowly but surely curtailed. What's interesting is to see how many groups he's managed to piss off. There's Amnesty International, there's environmental people, there's uh, women's rights people, refugees, people from different countries who can no longer travel to America. I mean, he's really very popularly unpopular. He's <laughs> going for it, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. It's particularly sad, given women in your country have just yes. gained a huge amount of rights and women in America might be It's like there's only so many rights to go around, so <laughs> women in Ireland get more rights while the American sisters lose them. It's very, very sad. And with the new Supreme Court justice in America, it, it's all a very scary time. It's hard watching The Handmaid's Tale at the moment and going, oh, that's such a faraway world. Yeah, not really. We've bumped into actress, activist, all-round superwoman, Liz Carr. Liz, why are you here today? Oh, well, I love a march. <laughs> love a parade. It was Gay Pride on uh, Saturday, so we were there for that. Controversial, in a way, because that's quite consumerist, but let's okay. not talk about that. Okay. Um, and then today, because Trump's here, I think it's really important to go, do you know what? You're not welcome in our country. You're not beloved. May might adore you and want to lick you in many ways. We don't. Yes, that's inappropriate, but so is his visit here, I think. He's, I mean, what isn't he? That's the thing. He's a racist. He's friends with neo-Nazis. He's a climate denier. He takes the piss out of disabled people, out of women. He's, you know, it's just like the list goes on. He's hell-bent on war. I mean, it's stunning. He's got this far. And, and hasn't been impeached. It's like, okay, I have to believe that's about to happen. And in the meantime, I don't want him to feel that he's got a welcome in the hillside or in the city of London, because he absolutely hasn't. Hi, we've encountered another comedian. The streets are full of comedians today. Hello to Samantha Baines. Samantha, why are you here? Hello, I'm here because fuck Trump. Um, and also, I wanted to join in the Women's March, and my friend Alexandra Green has organised a dance protest. Now, I am not a dancer, but I, I'm a performer. So I said I'd join in. So it's um, a series of, like, 12 movements, and we're all sort of dressed in black, and we've been performing for an hour and a half non-stop this dance. And it just feels so powerful and silent but a real statement and at one point I sort of got a bit emotional because it just felt like there's movements that say sort of like stop and we throw away money and there's a kind of almost pickaxe movement it feels like we're making a statement without saying something which is what I'm not used to because I talk a lot <laughs> so yeah it's just an amazing event to be part of I think we need to tell Trump to go away and also support women and female solidarity my name is Patty and I've been staying here in London actually uh, at the Langham Hotel and I was so happy to see that they were protesting Donald Trump because when people say what do you think of your president I say he's not my president and he's horrific and it's very frightening being in the United States because none of us really, I don't think, expected him to win the election. 
And I think we're actually all still in a state of shock and depression over it because he has no qualifications whatsoever to be the president of the United States. He's just a horrific human being as well. And everything that Obama wanted to, did or tried to accomplish, even though he had, was fought by Congress in the United States, every single thing that Obama did, he has tried to undo and then some. And he alienates all the European countries. He alienates Theresa May. He alienated Macron. He's a misogynist. There's so many awful things about him. I'm honestly in disbelief that he's still president. And it so happens... Oh, so kicking off. My brother was a politician in Colorado who sadly passed away. He ran for Secretary of State of Colorado, and I could only imagine if he were still alive what he would do or say because, you know, the elections get bought now. You know, and there, there was so much money behind Trump's election, and God knows what was going on with him and Putin, who he admires as an oligarch. What issues are you most concerned about? Well, of course I'm sure concerned with this new um, Supreme Court election that he's going to have, and obviously about women's rights. I mean, I don't believe any government or any man in government should have any right to decide whether a woman should have an abortion or not. So that's a huge issue. Huge. And it's just beyond belief that all of this stuff is happening. We have fortunately bumped into the very wonderful Mara Clark, who's been here today speaking. We just heard you on stage just now. Mara, what brings you to this anti-Trump rally today? I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's all I can keep saying is I'm so, so sorry. Abortion Support Network doesn't really do politics. We're sort of more practical activists. But I was uh, invited to speak, and I thought that as someone with dual citizenship and somebody who cares a lot about reproductive rights and abortion and who's not a fan of things like racism or sexism or homophobia or transphobia or Islamophobia or all those sorts of things. And as the as the mother of a mixed race, mixed faith child with three passports, including America, that this was probably a good place for me to be. Plus, I really wanted to see the big Trump baby balloon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We all do. Now, obviously, you've mentioned a lot of things there, but in the last fortnight, the possibility that Roe v. Wade could be overturned has become quite a worry for American women. Well... As someone who used to work with with abortion funds in America uh, before I moved here, which was 13 years ago, Roe v. Wade has been under attack since Roe v. Wade was passed. We're already in a situation where there's six or seven states with one clinic. And if in those states are not not the little ones, it's like Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota. If you live in Texas, there's more than one clinic. But if you live in El Paso, you can actually fit the entire country of France in between yourself and your closest abortion clinic. And then there's all these other restrictions, which are called trap laws, which is our, which are, think, targeted restrictions on abortion providers. Things like saying abortion clinics have to be full surgical units. Um, just all these laws that are passed just to help shut down clinics. And this has been going on for ages. And also, one of the first things Congress did after Roe v. Wade was passed was they made it so that federal money couldn't buy abortions. So if you're poor you know, poor enough to get, um, you know, welfare or, or, or benefit or child benefit or whatever the UK equivalent is, I should really know because I live here, you couldn't have that help pay for an abortion. So 
for me, this is sort of situation normal on the one hand, but but what's really great about it, because I, I like to put a little silver spin on, on, on everything, is so many people are getting ready. Um, and I don't want to say that changing the court is a positive thing, because it's not. Not just for abortion, but for a lot of things. But um, there's an organization called the National Network of Abortion Funds, which we're a part of. They have over 70 organizations that have already been helping those most at risk access abortions. So just in case anybody wants to rage donate, that's where they should go. My name's Alice and I'm here with Action Aid UK. We're a women's rights organization. We fight for the rights of the poorest women and girls in the world. Donald Trump visiting the UK is obviously, we're not very happy about it, but it's, people think that his policies only affect women in America and it's just not true. Like they really affect some of the poorest women and girls in the world, some of the women that we fight for every day. His um, introduction of the global gag rule has just devastated funding for women's health care. He has such disrespect for human rights and for all those reasons we're marching here today. Hi, we've managed to grab five minutes with Dadia Abdi, who is from Action Aid Somaliland, about why she's here at this protest. Hi, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm here to join in solidarity women around the world to protest against Trump's treatment towards women and bring noise from Somaliland. Trump's treatment towards women, his triple effect is, is reaching our shores. As the most powerful leader in the world, um, if he's mistreating women and the other leaders will not feel the pressure to respect women. And that's why we're here and to show that women are gathering together and showing the strength is to say no more violence against women. And for Trump, if you remain silent, it's a crime crime against humanity, a crime that you will be held accountable. My country is a highly patriarchal country where male supremacy is the one who decides woman's body and the way we do, we do with our body and seeing a man at the top of the world is really encouraging them to continue that attitude towards women. So it's affecting us. Actually, it has been working in Somaliland since 19, 1992 working with women, vulnerable women and excluded communities. And we have been helping them in women rights, resilience building, education and, and women's political participation. We're also joined by Kenyan women's rights activist Violet Mathega. Well, how come you're here today? Uh, today I'm really excited to join the women uh, in London in this march. It's because... I truly believe as a women rights activist in the grassroots movement in Kenya is that uh, issues that affect women affect women all over the globe. And it is with this reason I come here in, solidar in solidarity with sisterhood to be able to voice our concerns about the women rights agenda. You are here especially for this march? Yes, I am. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am specifically here to come and show solidarity, to, to see the sisterhoodness in terms of looking at women's rights at the global level, at the regional level, and back to the community level so that we enhance women's rights advancement and to ensure we have good examples as leaders who protect uh, women and girls within the community and the decisions that they make. They ensure that women are part of the decision-making processes and they take part in terms of uh, taking control of their lives and making decisions in development processes. Okay, this is a question for both of you, really. You 
been over here to show off solidarity. How do we return the favour to you guys? Uh, for us, in terms of uh, showing the support, is that when we have African issues, when we have women rights concerns that are specific, country-based, be it in Somalia or in Kenya, we want you to support us. It might be in social media, but we want, because decisions are mainly made in these countries in terms of what support comes to Africa and what is the agenda that is pushed in Africa. So we want to put the women's rights agenda at the key of mobilizing and ensuring that the leaders make decisions that ensure women and girls are safe. Yes, um, I also, um, addition to that is, London is the hub of the media, global media, and bringing our issue to the global media helps us, the world, to see what is happening in our different countries. And in that solidarity, we bring change about at where we, where we are living and the community level. So your media can bring about change. We are joined by the very fabulous future star of the Standard Issue in Conversation event at Edinburgh, comedian Aisha Hazarika. Aisha, hi. Hi, this has been so much fun. It's like all the best people, all the best human beings in London are here today. We've just heard you talking on stage. That was rather brilliant. Oh, thanks. I had a really good time. I was a bit nervous. Sometimes these things can be really, really difficult, but the audience was absolutely lovely. Basically, I just swore a lot about Trump and who knew I got a really good reception. Who knew? I wish all my gigs could be that easy. (laughs) (laughs) What is it that's driven you here uh, other than being, because I'm assuming even if you hadn't been invited to speak, you would have been here today. No, I'm really mercenary. I've charged a massive <laughs> fee, so I'm actually like, this is paying for my holiday. No, of course. So, no, I couldn't not be here today because as a woman, as a Muslim, as somebody who cares about human rights, you know, I don't actually get out and protest that much. But Trump is such an affront to all the values that I hold dear that I just felt I absolutely had to be here. What do you make of Trump slagging off Theresa May? Well, it's the equivalent of going to someone's house for dinner and then doing a dirty protest. It is the height of rudeness. It shows that he's got absolutely no respect for Theresa May. To be fair, no one has much respect for Theresa May, but he's completely sort of made his feelings very clear. But there's something much more serious. He's shown two things. He's shown just how hard Brexit is going to be. I don't mean a hard Brexit. I mean just how difficult Brexit is going to be. And also he's shown people that this is what the reality of the choice is. You either stay close to the EU and it might not be perfect, you either stay close to it or you become a slave to Donald Trump. And I know where I would rather be. Absolutely. And what about this week? This crazy, crazy week in politics. What do we make about Bojo and, and, and all of this nonsense? Well, it shows you that we've actually got a political crisis in this country at the moment. We have no effective leadership. We've got Brexit, the biggest political decision affecting us in a generation. It will define politics for the next sort of 20, 30 years. And we've got no leadership on it. To quote Malcolm Tucker from The Thick of It, it's known as a clusterfuck. How's your plans for Edinburgh going, Aisha? <laughs> I'm in that state of complete panic. I'm like sort of two weeks away from Edinburgh. And I'm like terrified about my show. I'm excited about it, but I'm absolutely 
kind of nervous it's like is it funny enough have I written it properly so I'm at that stage that every performer you can tell anyone that's going to Edinburgh they've got a kind of weird haunted look about them at the moment you go are you alright you're like yeah I'm fine I'm fine I need to go rehearse I need to go and write and can you can you get me a preview anywhere where can we you can see Aisha at our gig on the 12th of August where can we see your solo show Aisha so I'm going to be at the Gilded Balloon uh, in the wine bar appropriately uh, at 6.45 and my show is called Girl on Girl it's about the fight for feminism wonderful thank you so much Aisha thanks Hannah here from the comfort of my own sofa now I have a really brown nose and something approaching sunburn on my shoulders but that was a fantastic day well done to everyone involved in organising it and well done to everyone who turned up I'm here just to give you a few more details of some of the the people that we spoke to earlier because they were all brilliant. If you'd like to learn more about Action Aid's work in Somaliland or in Kenya or in fact anywhere around the world, the best place to start is to go to their website which is www.actionaid.org.uk. If you'd like to know more about Bloody Good Period and the great work that Gabby and her team are doing there, you can visit bloodygoodperiod.com. If, like Mara suggested, you'd like to rage donate some money to help abortion networks in America, a great place to start is abortionfunds.org. And um, as we spoke about with Aisha, she will be appearing at one of our In Conversation events in Edinburgh on August 12th. So if you fancy hearing her say more brilliant stuff, that's the way you do it. And finally, just for everybody who was asking where I got that T-shirt that I was wearing on Twitter. That actually does come directly from the Women's March. You can visit womensmerch.co.uk to buy one and that money will go to help support their work. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with the Bush Telegraph in early August. Until then. Hello. Hannah and I are in Howarth at the Bronte Parsonage Museum. We're sat on a bench near the graveyard and apparently the trees are filled with death, but we'll come back to that. (laughs) But we're here with Lauren Livesey. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Lauren is a font of all knowledge about the Bronte sisters and we've come to chat to her because it is the bicentenary of Emily Bronte's birth. Lauren, what's your official title? I am the audience development officer in charge of events at the Bronte Society. Tell us about the trees. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sat in the meadow with just next to the wall that goes over into the graveyard and there are lots of trees there filled with lots of rooks but the trees were planted in the 1850s as a response to the terrible kind of sanitation in Howarth at the time with the sole goal of sucking up all the badness from the 42,000 bodies in the graveyard so yes the trees are filled with death yeah she didn't say badness before she said juices juices. this is true this is true I was I was trying to lift the tone but I'll just no, I'll keep it down. It's what there. Emily would have wanted. <laughs> it yeah. is, probably, yes. It's 200 years since Emily Bronte was born. Mm-hmm. Why are we still talking about her? I was speaking to a local historian yesterday who said that if Emily hadn't written any books, we would know nothing about her because historians find out about people because of what they leave behind and what Emily would have left behind would be a birth certificate and a death certificate she didn't marry, she didn't own property, she didn't have children any of these things, but she wrote a novel and a handful of poems that were so extraordinary and touched people in this sort of visceral, vital way 
that we are still talking about her we're still trying to find out more about her you know what we know is so limited you've got to kind of fill in the gaps with speculation and supposition so that means there are as many different emilies as there are people who love her work so she's that much closer to us because she's kind of a creature of our own creation really people tend to read Wuthering Heights for the first time when they're sort of 13 14 years old and I think books you read for the first time at that age stick with you in a kind of vital part of your makeup and you know as many times as you reread them and rediscover them there's nothing like that first time when they sort of hit you full force with the power and and the amazing kind of quality of the writing it is extraordinary that Mm. someone who lived the life that emily lived managed to produce something like wuthering heights yes because i mean her life was was pretty circumscribed you know she spent most of her life in in howarth she was born in thornton moved to howarth when she was about two or three years old she did spend some time away at school or working as a governess very unsuccessfully or or studying for one year in in brussels on the continent she doesn't seem to have ever wanted much from life other than the freedom to kind of be left to her own devices create an imaginary world which she peopled with sort of strong matriarchal warrior queens and any time spent away from kind of her own imagination and her own devices if she had to work or spend time doing anything elsewhere she kind of visibly wilted you know she was very subscribed in her physicality but her imagination was limitless and took her wherever she wanted to go and sometimes that was to weird novels with multiple narrators and pseudo hero villains who dig up their dead lovers you know she she had an imagination that's for sure oh we've all done that come on yeah yeah friday night generally yeah (laughs) Quite a lot of what we know about her comes via her sister, Charlotte. Now, I'm not entirely sure, and you will be able to tell us how much of that is true, but I think we can all assume that maybe our sisters aren't the most impartial observers of our lives. No, I think that's really fair. I mean, Emily and Anne both died within a year or so of their books coming out, so they didn't leave much behind. They died not known by anybody. So Charlotte was kind of their literary executor. And Wuthering Heights and the Tent of Wildfell Hall were considered so shocking at the time that there was a big pushback against them in the press. And Charlotte kind of really wanted to save her sister's reputations. And by doing so, she airbrushed their lives. You know, Emily, she, she always seems to have considered... I think she called her a baby god. She was this kind of creation who was just astonishing in terms of her scope, her imagination. You can't deny the brilliance of what Emily does. And she also has a kind of baby sister and never kind of got over. Oh, isn't she sweet? She's done that. Isn't you know? Isn't that wonderful? And and she minimised kind of Anne's contribution to the family circle. But yeah, you you wouldn't ever want your personality to be filtered through what your siblings think of you. And I think Charlotte's trying to make Emily's eccentric personality into something a bit more fit for public consumption. And also trying to rescue her reputation has maybe sanitised what we know of Emily a little bit. Even so, you know, she says Emily was stronger than a man, simpler than a child, that her nature stood alone, that she was rush and rustic and not as a root of heath. You know, she is she is kind of somebody that we can't quite pin down or put a label on. And we don't know a great deal about her. So again, you come back to this kind of unknown. And I think that's why she is such, such an enigma and so... Uh, interesting to so many people and has been. Sorry, is that Moorish as in like the Moors? Like the Moors, Right, yes. okay, got you. Yes, I think that's. I think she used that description when she was kind of summing up Heathcliff, did Charlotte, um, but I think it could do just as well for Emily herself. Yeah. You know, 
there are a few writers who are more tied to a specific place than Emily and the Moorland setting because she was it was so much a part of her it shaped her writing but interestingly in Wuthering Heights you know, everybody thinks oh if, even if you've not read it oh Cathy and Heathcliff on the moors all the time there's one tiny tiny scene of them actually on the moors and I think it's just reported speech and yet we've got this idea of them sort of constantly communing with nature and that's as much pop culture and sort of things that we've implanted from our knowledge of Emily rather than things that are actually textually backed up in the book. It's really interesting. That is really interesting. That is interesting as well because pop culture, there's been like several yeah. adaptations of Wuthering Heights. Probably the most famous one, the one with Laurence Olivier, mm. stops halfway through. Yes. Laurence, when the first adaptation came out, it was a silent film in 1919 and it was billed as Emily Bronte's Tremendous Story of Hate. Yeah. Oh, I want. I live for that to come. With somebody. Yeah. I want to see about that me. as a pantomime. <laughs> it's been completely lost, and we've got no kind of. We've got the shooting strip, but no footage of it. But you know, Heathcliff comes along with Lawrence Olivier, nineteen thirty nine, matinee idol looks. You know, instead of being this sort of horrible, abusive villain who hangs puppies and beats his wife, he's kind of this wounded stable boy who just needs a good woman to complete him. And you know, that's a Byronic hero all over. You know, we're still doing that with with. Kind of romantic heroes nowadays. I really wish you could see Lauren's face because she is not impressed. <laughs> I do spend most of my time destroying the kind of dreams of young sort of fifteen year old girls who go, "Oh, Heathcliff and Kathy relationship goals," and I just go on this mad rant about, "No, it's a story about hate and obsession. It's not love, and it's not you know." Charlotte says that you know the only kind of feeling that. Heathcliff has that is remotely human is his regard and affection for Hareton and that you know even his his interest and, and passion for, for Kathy is tainted with obsession and hate and she's not often right about Emily's work but she's spot on there you know it's not a love story no. people what are you doing no I remember my friend saying to me that he just thought you know like Wuthering Heights and Romeo and Juliet where his relationship goes I'm like mate they end badly yeah. yeah I mean what are we telling young girls you know what you want is somebody who will kind of monitor your every move never let you do anything judge you and at the end will try and decompose with you like that's that really last good. bit sexy though right no no nah. just me all right just you. <laughs> she's on what the trees are drinking <laughs> oh god i feel bilious <laughs> why was wuthering heights and the ten of wealth hall deemed so shocking when they came out i think partly because i mean there's a northernness element to it there was a lot of kind of southern newspaper critics going oh gosh is it really like that up in the province yeah we don't like we don't like none of that nonsense (laughs) um but i think partially because novels at the time tended to be quite didactic i mean jane Eyre, an amazing book but you look at it you know how you're supposed to feel about every character jane good rochester good bertha bad you know you know how you're supposed to feel because you're told there's no kind of authorial judgment on anybody really in wuthering heights heathcliff is a horrible human being he's abusive he's manipulative he's terrible human but at no point do you not understand why he's doing what he's doing he's got motivations you understand that he was brutalized when he was younger you see why he's hitting back at the world that abused him and he ends up kind of getting what he wants in a way yeah he's dead but he's with kathy which is all he's ever wanted Victorian fiction at the time, you know, good people would do good things and they'd get a good reward. Bad people would always end badly. None of that happened with Heathcliff. The language was considered to be very coarse. Um, it was very unchristian. You know, Kathy quite plainly says she goes to heaven and she doesn't want to be there and she cries and asks to go home. The idea of a Victorian curate's daughter rejecting heaven and wanting to return to nature, that's quite shocking in itself. 
And as for the Tent of Wildfell Hall, you know, that deals with spousal abuse, alcoholism, a woman denying her husband his conjugal rights and then taking their child and running away. That would have been illegal at the time. And yet Anne is proposing that that's what a woman should do in an abusive relationship. The books were really shocking. And at the time they came out, people thought they were written, assumed they were written by men. So to then find out that these books are written by gasp, gasp women would have just been a complete headspin for the Victorian reading public. So who were they basing these people and these stories on? We don't really know. We know for certain that they read a huge amount of Byron when they were younger and the idea of the Byronic hero is really strong in particularly Charlotte and Emily's work. Anne knew better that if you marry a dark brooding man who's a bit of an idiot to you before the wedding, he's probably going to be an idiot after and she shows what happens there in the tent of Wildfell Hall. But they took a lot from Byron, they took quite a bit from Shakespeare, quite a lot from Walter Scott but they'd been writing imaginary kind of world since they were very young and a lot of the themes that Emily pulls on in Wuthering Heights is kind of yearning for freedom, this connection to the moors, these kind of dark deeds and doings. She'd uh, explored in her writings about Gondor, this imaginary world she created with her sister Anne which was led by matriarchal strong women which, I mean, she's a feminist in in the 19th century. She wouldn't have identified with that moniker. She wouldn't have known what it meant. But she was somebody who spoke very strongly and had real opinions in a time when women weren't expected to have them. But she wasn't keen on the male pseudonyms, was she? What happened in 1845 is all the girls and their brother are at home together. Charlotte goes rummaging around, finds some of Emily's poems in a drawer and is astonished by how good they are. She was just absolutely taken aback by the astonishing quality of the writing, goes to Emily and says, oh my God, these are amazing, we should publish. Emily, who is private and self-contained to a fault, just blows up her sister for invading her privacy and refuses to speak for several days. Anne comes along and says, well, I've written some poems too, plays Peacemaker, and they all decide to publish some poems together. They had to break Emily down, and she would only consent if they published under a pseudonym. So actually, she was the one who was pushing for this Uh, anonymity. You've used the word feminist, and it leads quite neatly into a question I wanted to ask you. Were Anne and Emily the feminists in the family? I think, kind of disclaimer... They wouldn't have known what feminism was. It didn't exist as a movement at the time. They preceded the suffrage movement. They would have had very certain ideas about what women could do and couldn't do because they were brought up by a father who was, you know, very free-thinking, but essentially a small-c conservative. However, this same father insisted on them having a good education, didn't censor their reading, expose them to any kind of literature that they wanted to access. So they were free-thinking. Definitely they weren't afraid to put their ideas across... They set out to make their own way in a world that was very, very difficult for women to navigate. If you read the preface to The Tent of Wildfell Hall and decide not to kind of peg Anne as a a proto-feminist, I think there's something a bit wrong with you. You know, she says there is nothing that a man can write that should be shocking to a woman and nothing that a woman should write that can be shocking to a man. We should educate everyone, you know, similarly. There's no way you can't call the whole family relatively feminist, to be fair. I mean, look at Jane Eyre. You know, women feel just as men feel. In Jane Eyre, Jane tells Rochester that she's just as good as him, she's his equal, and when they walk through the gates of heaven and stand in front of St Peter, they will do so equal as we are. She's telling a man and her employer that she's his equal. That's revolutionary, not just on gender terms, but on class grounds as well. They didn't have the dialogue, the language 
the Lexus that we use to say, you know, I'm a Marxist, I'm a feminist, I'm a socialist, whatever. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have those embryonic feelings and thoughts within their writing. Oh that was a bit God. of a rant, sorry. No, that was, that <laughs> that was, was incredible. We were both like, oh, in awe. I was like, I want to go home and read The Tenant of Wildfell. Oh, again. everybody should. I know this is about Emily, but disclaimer, Anne is amazing. Everyone she should is. read her. Lauren, who is your favourite Bronte? I am an Emily person, I have to say. I read Wuthering Heights when I was very young. I absolutely adored it. I reread it constantly and I'm always finding new things in it. I hadn't read that much of Anne until I came to work here and I've just been amazed by how incredible she is. It's such a disservice to her that she's not remembered in the same breath as her sisters, that she's relegated to being the other one. And if I had to meet the girls, Anne would be the one I'd want to spend time with because Charlotte would be a bit bossy and annoying. Emily would probably spit in your face and go off and be on her own. Anne would be the only one he'd actually get a decent conversation out of. She's not in these trees, though, is she? No. <laughs> no, she's buried in Scarborough, which is so sad. She's the only member of the family not buried in the crypt beneath the church. So in death, as in life, Anne is a side note, which is just oh, so annoying. Although, having been to Scarborough relatively recently, they are very proud of they the are. fact that they have... Um... Yeah. May I ask you about Lily Cole? Yes. Yes. So when Lily Cole became creative partner for the Bronte Museum for 2018, mm-hmm. is that right? Yes. There was a little bit of a hoo-ha from some, well, some man. <laughs> this is true. Listen, we're a membership organisation. We have 1,900 members um, who all give of their time and their money and support the museum and their work. In that many people, you're going to have a few dissenting, not even dissenting, just varying opinions on things. You know, there was a piece written about Lily. We were hugely happy to work with her. I was in the meeting where she was proposed. We thought she would be amazing. We asked her to come in and raise a profile of the Bronte sisters and create a new legacy, a new piece of work um, to memorialise Emily. She's definitely done the first. She's creating a film in conjunction with the Foundling Museum. I mean, she is a woman who encountered some judgment about who she was and and choices that she had made that somehow would have disqualified her from working with us. Hang on, is this Lily Cole who went to King's... College yeah. Cambridge with a double first. Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, do you mean oh, Lily Cole, the pretty just one? The model. So yeah. Just okay. Really yeah. 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 I mean, listen. I, oh. it, it, it's it's yeah. I, I think the proof will be in the pudding. She's going to produce a film. We're so excited to work with it on her. I have spent time with Lily. She is thoughtful, intelligent. She's engaging with Emily in such an incredibly passionate and informed way. I some almost wouldn't even continue to give credence to anybody who who thinks badly about Lily because let her do something first judge her on what she produces if you don't like it then that's fair enough but you know we at the society are so proud to be working with her and yeah I think she's an incredible ambassador for Emily but it also has to be said we're working with three people this year and they're all getting ignored because everybody's focusing on this you know working with the poet Patience Agarby who's our writer in residence and the work she's producing is amazing and incredible we're working with the Unthanks the folk, folk group who are producing a song cycle in response to Emily oh are they really? they are it's you know that we're working with all these wonderful phenomenal people we're working with um, Lucy Powery who is our young ambassador um, who is a, a vlogger and YouTuber and we've also worked with the, the artist Kate Whiteford who's produced a work responding to Emily's Hawk you know we're working with a lot of people this year Lily is one of them Lily is our prime creative partner and what she's doing is incredible yeah listen up pricks her pudding's going to be delicious (laughs) it's going to be great Lauren thank you so much for talking to us 
Tell us how people can find out more about the Bronte Parsonage Museum. So you can visit us, that's the first thing. We're open all year round except for a couple of days over Christmas and in the month of January when we close to refresh our exhibitions. We're celebrating Emily's birthday, which is on the 30th of July, with a four-day festival of events, readings, film screenings. You can see Lily's new film screened and there's so much going on that weekend. So check out our website, it's bronte.org.uk. Grab us on social media, we're on Twitter and Facebook. And yeah, just if you've got any more questions you want to know more about Emily, read her books, read you know her poems, her novel, read the countless biographies that have been written about her. And for every single biography you read, you'll get a different Emily because Emily is this nebulous, enigmatic figure and she's all things to all people. But first of all, she's an astonishing writer and you won't regret reading Wuthering Heights. Even if you read it and you don't like it, which some people don't, it's still an astonishing work of fiction and if you don't like it you'll probably feel very strongly about it and you can have some good ranty arguments yeah we'll fight you on twitter yeah (laughs) (laughs) on that bombshell i'm here outside the theater cluid in a lovely sunny mold in north wales with catherine parkinson hello actress and star of home i'm darling and Tamara Harvey, the director of said play, also the artistic director of the theatre. Yep. I have just sat in a matinee. I thought it was great. Hey. No, it was. It was really brilliant. I have loads of questions. But the first thing I have to say is that set is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Anna Fleischler, the designer, um, A, is a brilliant, brilliant designer, but also had a lot of fun designing it and then theatre cluid we've got a, an incredible team of set builders and and stuff here and and the national theatre have a wonderful props department and and everyone just had such a good time doing it because it's such a kind of beautiful intricate well i actually thing. did google in the i always say half time i need to be more cultured in the <laughs> interval where that sofa came from it was lovely <laughs> you did it, really? i did I love that so Ever, there's, there's no such a long house. waiting list for that I, I can't even tell you yeah, I, think, I think we might actually just have to kind of have an auction yeah, actually I have worked with the designer Anna before and she I still have the pink stool from the 1940s production I did for her and that's sort of I wash my children's hair sitting on that stool so <laughs> I feel like she is going to indulge me and give me something keep but, believing that <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's completely fantastic is your costumes oh yeah yeah do you still think that when you have to put them on and then get them off as quickly as you do every, no, I'm a big, every day. I really appreciate vintage clothes. I always have done. I'm sort of a, quite a big passion of mine. A lot of actresses seem to like vintage clothes. So I can't tell you, I was so appreciative in the costume fitting. I think um, Anna and all the brilliant costume people that, that did all the makes here in Wales, I think they were very um, pleased that it was somebody who really liked period clothes. Um, that white and pink dress... I could never pull that off, but that is absolutely lovely. I feel like a fondant fancy in that (laughs) With the little cardigan. Now, Judy, your character, she's kind of, to try and explain it to people, and I might be far off, so feel free to correct me, she feels sort of somewhere between, like, Beverly Moss in in Abigail's party, and that she's the hostess with the mostess, and sort of Betty Draper. And you actually do mention Mad Men in it. In that, almost immediately, the first thing I wanted to do was to see her by herself. I wanted to know what it was that she was going to do when she was in the house because Betty Draper's always at her most interesting oh, when yeah. she's by herself that's, I think that's a really good combination actually I'm sure they've never been those two characters yeah. two of my favourite characters in TV things actually and um, have ever been you know sort of they, they, I think Judy is a sort of mix of them 
obviously she enjoys being in company but in her house she has kind of taken removed herself a little bit so her choice has been partly driven I think by some kind of psychological unrest and I think that's what you see with somebody like Betty Draper she's sort of unhappy and and so it's it's not us saying make this choice and you will be unhappy it's because the reasons that she's made the choice come from an unhappy place in the first place so um yeah, I think that's... So, uh, so, so basically the premise is, for people who won't have seen it yet, because it's... Unless they're in Wales, in which case they, they may well have. She, has, she is, is choosing to live her life in the past, is probably the, the best way we can describe it. Now, this was written by Laura Wade. I'm yep. go to Tamara with this. Now, this I read was six years in the writing. <laughs> <laughs> that makes Laura sound very slow. Yeah, she's the slowest typist in the world. But the interesting thing is, some of the issues that it sort of covers I know. have become way more prescient in those. Yeah. With, like, Me Too and with Brexit, the sort of sentimentalisation of the past. It's Yeah, to, to an almost unhelpful degree. I mean, we, we started, so right from the get-go, um, Laura knew that she wanted to write a play for Catherine. They'd worked together previously and she just loves the way that Catherine speaks her words and and Laura and I knew that we wanted to work together on this piece and in fact the the way that some of the things in it have have come have become much more a part of kind of public debate and and now um felt quite dangerous you know because though they are elements that have been in the play for a number of years now and of course now it feels as though it, it felt as though we might seem to be jumping on a bandwagon or or trying to make it relevant yeah for the sake of relevance and in fact so so in fact the process uh, over the last year or so has partly been about trying to ensure that they feel really bed, bedded in and that, that they are absolutely integral to the narrative and integral to the the questions that we're trying to ask because um, for instance the so-called me too scene i can confirm was in the draft I saw you know three years ago so it wasn't I I remember when all the stuff started to happen emailing Laura and saying oh my goodness this is um this is making this even more relevant but yeah it's it's almost not helpful because then you sort of think it's 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 more than just topical it's not just um jumping on any kind of bandwagon and it's not just hashtag me too that scene is it it's more complicated than that but um but yeah, I should say that Laura, since she started writing it, we have between us had six children, so that's also why. Wow! It's taken, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and done other shows as oh, well. Oh yeah, this yeah, has yeah. Been, this has been just a long time in the cooking. Well, I don't think that something taking a long time to write is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, allegedly, our friends in the north was written over like thirty years, and it's one of the best British dramas that exists. Yeah. Well, and there, and there has been a kind of glorious uh, sense in which we. Uh, in rehearsals, because of that long gestation period, um, I felt as though Catherine and Laura and I had, have been just completely on the same page. And any time a question came up about character or about cutting a line or, or you know, writing something, rewrites, there was just such a shorthand. We we could almost say it was something almost with a look. Embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. at times. Yeah. What I found quite interesting was I've just been to see a matinee. Which, obviously, was full of the sort of people who are available to see a matinee on a Thursday afternoon. So, generally an older audience. Are you finding a different reaction 
from your matinee crowd to your evening crowd? Are they laughing at different things? Are they responding to different things? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I do feel that obviously the demographic of the, this, the audience here in Wales is, is, is different to what I've experienced either in the West End or at the National or places like they're all called. And I'm, I'm really loving the audiences here because they're quite vocal and... You know, I like to see lots of theatre in London. You, you can go to places like Stratford East and you'll get a really vocal crowd. But generally speaking, they're quite well behaved once you get further into town. Here, I mean, when when um, Johnny says something a bit mean to me, we've literally got a massive <laughs> vocal response. I find that very pleasing. I, that's the way I think theatre should be. I hope we have a bit of that still in London. I'll be very interested to see. In terms of the matinee and the evening crowd i haven't noticed we haven't done enough matinees for me to notice yet but i think it could be quite a coup this show because i think that there's a there's my mum's generation who will you know literally um do a round of applause about the 50s speech and things like yeah. that and then there's the kind of the younger generation for whom i think it's all very relevant too and it feels very pertinent to me and i'm well, I'm, I'm between those two well so. I, I, have, I have to say i did i did feel that because the crowd there were, were really responding to that this is what the 50s was actually like. Mm. Yeah. They are the people who had to put up with the, the sexism in, the, in mm. the 50s. Younger people obviously have, hopefully, making a point about not putting up with it. Which makes the fact that the most feminist person in it is the oldest person in it mm. really interesting, I think. Because Judy's mother is a real, well, hardcore second wave feminist is probably the best way mm. to, to describe it. How, how much did feminism play a role in this it was certainly something that we talked about and thought about a lot during the process of making it of you know laura writing it and then redrafting and then making it and i guess judy would say that she is absolutely as much of a feminist as her mum is is kind of what's fascinating well there is this argument that if a choice is made by a woman it is therefore uh, her choice therefore that is feminism in action which is it's feminism as individualism one of the brilliant journalists that we spoke to said and um i think that's interesting and you know sort of uh wondering if that's okay or, or if we have a kind of collective responsibility to to our mother's generation who as, as sylvia says in the play have have fought for something different but um i mean for, for me i have to say the play first and foremost for me is is about is a romance and it's about a woman a woman a person who's scared and opts out basically and and retreats from the world because she's threatened and frightened of it and obviously there are all these um uh sort of it, it is about feminism it is about me too it's about all those things too but first and foremost i think it's about that and I think that it's particularly in Judy's case, she has made the wrong decision by deciding to stay at home because she um, has a, a forensic brain that she enjoyed using in the yeah. workplace. And I think it's really unhelpful when we get into the chat about um, what women should do yeah. or, or what choice, because the, the, surely feminism just means that whatever choice you make at any given time, you know, I've chosen to be at home sometimes uh, with my children. I've chosen to be... In, at work and, and my mother stayed at home for a bit and then she worked full time for a bit and I think what we should feel is that as much as possible we have a choice although of course you know my, my mother and her mother didn't have a choice they had to go out to work for financial reasons but everybody has their own circumstance yeah. and we just should just take all judgement out of the equation because we did an interview for BBC online and I was a bit 
upset as tomorrow knows that, that, that whatever I had said specifically about the play and about Judy's situation had been sort of seen as, as me saying women have a responsibility, the responsibility yeah. to be in a workplace because that, that wasn't what I meant. I meant that Judy um, had a responsibility to herself, she discovers, to not retreat from the world, which is what she does in the play. Well, I mean, the good news is Judy wouldn't be on Twitter, so she wouldn't have the backlash of people when she's <laughs> things no. like that. And I think a number of her points, her, sort of her starting motivation is quite solid. I, I agree with her on a lot of things. I agree with her on rampant consumerism. I agree mm. that things should be fixed and not thrown you away. See, I'm a rampant consumer, so... <laughs> <laughs> so there is, I've actually never owned a, uh, a dishwasher because I've never had a kitchen big there's nothing that I've wanted to sacrifice enough to mm. make space for that and so. you see the young generation don't you sort of going back to vinyl and, yeah. and, and sort of you know doing lots of kind of meditative mindfulness and stuff and I think I think there will be a backlash against the modern world. There's bound to be, isn't there? And people are yeah. going to make choices to, to live a simpler life. And I, I'm all for that. And people do get upset when an old landmark building gets knocked down. I, I mean, yeah, I am one of those people. <laughs> I couldn't wear those dresses, though. In fact, I've never looked as smart as Judy looks to do her housework. <laughs> it's just staggering. <laughs> I don't know a wedding's looking like. <laughs> no, 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 no. You are moving to London. Yes. To the national so we've got another week and a half here and then uh we open at the national uh the last week of july are you is the entire cast going are you yeah. keeping the same cast yeah. i have to say everybody mm. in it was was really great I, i've oh they are I've, and we all get on so well yeah. worryingly well don't we tomorrow yeah. <laughs> it's been a lot of, lot of fun it's been created together so uh, it's a theater clued and national theater co-production um, and uh, therefore was always going to open here and then go there. Um, lock, stock and barrel. We will be packing up every last teaspoon and taking it down to the South Bank. Oh, see, there's something I learned. You're supposed to polish your cutlery. Mm. <laughs> only, only if it's silver? I don't know. If you I don't know. It, Am I polishing that silver? cutlery well? You're that, polishing yeah. it I'm not sure. No, thing. I'm I, not sure yet. I well. checked with my dad because yeah. my dad was my source for... for a, polishing advice and he came to see it the other night and I said how was the polishing and he said yes it was very good so oh! we have the mark of approval listen when my husband sees this I think he might sort of faint because <laughs> I can't tell you how much of a non-domestic goddess I am it's a, it's absurd and I've tried very hard to look as if I do do this stuff in my spare time <laughs> so what is next here at the theatre when you come back as the artistic director as I think you can tell us about uh we well we we go into our summer period which is all about our community so we have a um a family arts festival coming up at the end of july which is three glorious days of the entire building being overrun by children and their families we have we're just gonna miss i know you're just gonna miss it with your with your two little girls but um we have workshops and face painting and painting on the windows and um visiting shows and so that's all brilliant and then we have a month of summer schools for um, for, for kids and um, dance summer schools and the National Youth Theatre of Wales is making us their home for, for a week. Um, and then we head into our autumn season with a Lord of the Flies with a female cast. Wow. Um, a new play by Kath Char- Catherine Chandler uh, called Thick as Thieves that we're doing in co-production with Clean Break. Um, and, then, and then we head into Christmas. So I might have to come back to you to talk about Lord of the flies because that's interesting mm. because mm, yeah. I wonder how girls would actually be mm. in that situation we'll have to make do, a date do in come I still get upset about Piggy <laughs> <laughs> and what's next for you Catherine? 
Uh, or can you think beyond this? Uh, I can't. I mean, I, it's very all-consuming. This in a wonderful way. So I haven't. Uh, but I, I am. I do know what I'm doing next. Um, it's. A, I'm, I'm doing a TV thing after this. But mainly, I'm going on holiday for a bit. <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> Although there's a holiday aspect to this, isn't there? I shouldn't say that because Catherine is in every single... Catherine never leaves, it, leaves the stage except to change frocks in this show. But your children arrive this weekend. Yeah, and, and we have a hiatus week, which is quite unusual, where we, we stand down for, for um, scheduling reason, reasons, I think, and um, we're staying here, so we're going to... Chester Zoo and all sorts of basically I'm glorious. always trying to work out a holiday I make every job like a holiday I do a very good job <laughs> well thank you so much for your time it's been great and thank very you welcome. that was a great play and everyone should go and see it you play ball like a girl go on do one kid Jenny off the blocks Hello, we are joined by former hockey legends and current legends, but in a less hockey way. Get on with it, I think that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I've really nailed it. Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. This is quite exciting because I'm a bit obsessed with like all things Olympics. Are you actually? I actually am, yeah. You are gold medalists and indeed bronze medalists. So there's like four Olympic medals in theory in this room, in a way. I mean, not physically, but, you know, that's quite exciting to me. It's very exciting. Well done. Yes. Well done. Well done. You did ever so well. Also, thank you for, you know, making Britain look all right. Where do you keep them? In the bedside table. I keep mine. Do you ever put them on? Actually, I want to know about this tracksuit business. If I had a GB tracksuit, I'd just wear it to the shops and stuff. Do you ever do that? No. It's kind of like the uncool thing to do. We're I kind think. of the opposite, aren't we? Yeah, it's like, oh, I don't, do I have to put it on? Do I want to put it on? Especially when you retire, you're a bit like, oh, okay, well, you've retired now. Put the tracksuit away, love. I feel a bit like that. I feel a bit like, oh, she's got it out again. Oh, God, she's still, she's still in that mode. Do you ever wear it about the house? No, I, I get it out when I go to primary school, especially get the little ones to put them on. Oh, so yeah, look cute. Fun. You do wear it still, because I was going to ask if, if I could have it. It's a few yeah. Yeah. I'd like it so I can wear it to <laughs> Morrison's, <enough>. please. <laughs> well, it's quite amusing, though. Our first tracksuits are massive because they were like men's tracksuits because they obviously didn't make ladies fit back oh, in 2000. Yes, I this, oh, I remember yeah. when, when women weren't allowed to do sport because yes. of our, you know, yeah. I don't know, our tiny brains or something. <laughs> Sweating. Our, our, Sweating. Our small physique no, couldn't Glowing. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard about this. Our first Olympic Olympics was Sydney back in 2000 and it was all men's kit and yeah. you just had to try and order the smallest size which didn't fit <laughs> so my first tracksuit is is massive I was also a little bit bigger back then but it's yeah a lot a lot that bigger really, really really weird isn't it you have but to blow your nose tissues. on those giant tissues as well <laughs> <laughs> man sized <laughs> tissues <laughs> We're going to talk to you a bit about the Hockey World Cup, which is happening shortly. But first of all, I wanted to ask you a bit about how you got into hockey in the first place. Because hockey has got a bit of a dodgy reputation. As in, I think a lot of people remember playing hockey at school and, like, you know, hurting their knees on the all-weather pitch. And this, or this is my own personal memory of hockey. <laughs> what was it about hockey that you enjoyed well, I'd been doing gymnastics and swimming when I was growing up, so all things by itself, pretty much. Like gymnastics, it's like here's how you do a backflip, go and teach yourself how to do it for an hour. And swimming, you know, you'd get the thing in up and down, you go in the lane and 
didn't really speak to anybody. And then until I went to secondary school, and then we started to play netball, hockey, rounders, and I was like, oh, team sports, I can actually speak to people and interact with people. And I, and I just loved that aspect of it. And especially at school, like we played in the school team with girls, you would not say hello to in a normal school day. They were like other side of the year, you know, the hard girls. And But <laughs> you know the ones. Or maybe you were the ones. Um, no way. Wasn't, no way. <laughs> And then, yeah, but we'd all play together on this team and, you know, have each other's back and, and fight against the opposition. So it was something that I think I loved the most for me, yeah. Mm. What about you, Helen? <laughs> so I played everything when I was growing up. Um, I've got three older brothers, and so there was a ready-made two-on-two all the time. So football, cricket, hockey, tennis, played everything. My dad played hockey and cricket, and, yeah, I think hockey was just the one. I loved the team thing. Tennis kind of fell mm. by the wayside because it was just... And also you have to umpire yourselves and I wasn't really up for that. I was always kind of a bit too nice on the other side of the net. Yeah, okay, your point. And yeah, just I love hockey. It's a great team sport, but it's got all the, the skill element, which was something I was probably pretty good at. That's probably why I liked it. <laughs> it's quite interesting because you both sort of mentioned the team aspect of it because a lot of our women's teams are currently enjoying like massive successes, mm. but we don't really put any money into team sports. So it's interesting that that's really developing in spite of that. I know, imagine if we did put money into oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. When Jen interviewed Judy Murray, Judy Murray said, you know, from the point of view of parents, it's a lot easier for you to get your kid into sport if they are into a team sport mm, yeah, because there's a true. pre-existing structure that they can sort of join onto. Yeah, and you learn you learn so much in a team because, I mean, we both joined hockey clubs when we were reasonably young and you kind of get put in a, well, you have to be a certain age now, um, but I was playing, well, I joined a men's hockey club mm. when I was seven and I ended up playing in their seventh team, which was a men's team with mixed in with juniors, or boys and then me. And you learn a lot. You learn not just about hockey, but, you know, social aspects, how to yeah. work together and just what playing within a team is all about. It's a great thing to be a part of, and parents can kind of worry less when, when you're part of that group. Yeah, I think it's a safe space. It's like an immediate community, like we always say. Because like lots of young girls drop out of sport when they leave school. They just they, they can't fit into their daily life. And you know, there's lots of other stuff going on. But it's like if you play a team sport, you've immediately got a community. Wherever you go to university or work in the country, you can go and find your local netball team or hockey team or football team. you immediately got mm. a group of people that are like-minded, want to do similar stuff. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's, and for parents, safe space. You know, these days in particular... I think it's ideal. There's a World Cup coming up. There is, yes. <laughs> Give us your top yeah. tips for how to enjoy the Hockey World Cup. Yeah, I think there's tickets still available, so I would definitely come down. So it's at the Legacy venue, so where the London Olympics were, they couldn't have the hockey pitches there, so they've moved it like just across the A12, I think it is. It's still attached to the Olympic Park, though, and it's going to be massive. I think there's a 10,000-seat stadium, I think they put up. It's going to be a massive um, spectator venue with a big screen, and there's I've heard there's some big like inflatable slide shenanigans yeah. I'm sold so, yeah <laughs> uh, yeah. so even if you don't have a ticket you can go down go to this spectator venue it's yeah. kind of just a little bit away from the um, kind of like a equivalent yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bit, yeah and so you know there'll be some people who've got the, the tickets for the session before the England game and that, so they might just hang around and hopefully stay and watch it with everyone else in the in the village so yeah I mean it's, it's going to be an amazing event you know as soon as the tickets went on sale I think they sold 
about 80,000. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And we've already sold more than the ticket amount of tickets that were sold for the Cricket World Cup last summer. So, Woo-woo. yeah, the stadiums are going to be full. And, yeah, the atmosphere is going to be brilliant. And we're really looking forward to it. As a, a gambling woman myself, mm. where would I be wise to think about putting my money? You're always always safe bet. I'd say the Dutch and Argentinians are going to be in and around the medals. I was just having a look earlier. There's only ever been four winners. The Dutch have won it seven times out of 13, so... But, but, famously, you did beat them at the Olympics. We did. With that in mind, what do you think England's chances are? Yeah, good. I think they've got a good group. I think they're going to have to play well in the group. So they've got India... Who else they got? Ireland. Uh, Ireland and USA. So that'll be quite testing. um, But if they come out of that well, I think they'll have some good momentum to go and go into the knockout or the quarterfinal phases. And then then it really is anybody's. I think strength and depth in women's hockey has just grown to the point where you get to that quarterfinal stage, you think, well, actually, anyone's in with a shout here. We just have to keep that positive momentum and stay focused. Yeah, I do think one of the things, really good positives for the England team is that the coach, Danny Kerry, is obviously really experienced now. And how we managed to win the Olympics was through very structured process of, of how to play each game tactically. We know that Danny's going to set up his team to go out and play each opposition the best way possible. Um, so even though they're not as experienced, they will you know, have the best plan in place to try and beat that. Um, can we watch it on telly? You can. Yeah, BT Sport are going to show all the games. They've got some old retired ladies back in to uh, to help with the commentary and the punditry. Oh, is, that you, is that you, mate? That yeah. is. We've got a job. We've been yeah. signed up. To, um, and Sam Quirk and Krista Cullen as well. And, um, yeah, it's going to be... They, they do it really well. I think Chris Hollins is hosting it. And, yeah, they get, they get all the analysis and all the kind of interaction with the crowd and the players and everything. So it'll be it'll be good few tears, I'm sure I'll cry. Yeah. Guaranteed. A couple of Prosecco headaches. Oh, yeah. Definitely <laughs> yeah. that as well. <laughs> I'm going to say something really simple. I really like the noise of a hockey match. I love the... It sounds like proper scrapping with sticks. I was going to yeah, say, as well as, your, um, as well as all the training you have to do, you have to be pretty hardy as well, don't you? Because I remember in the... Um, I can't remember who it was. Someone basically got like a stick in the face and had to go off... And then, and there was someone else in Rio who like had a jaw broken in the first, not Rio, in London. Helen is pissing herself because <laughs> it was Kate. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> that idiot got jaw broken. It was you that got yeah. your jaw broken in the first yeah. game. But didn't you come back on and play again later in the tournament? Yeah, I missed two games, had surgery, had some metal plates put in. Amazing surgeon at the Royal London uh, East London. He put a couple of metal plates in and got me back out there. You are hardcore. That Hardy is true. Yeah, don't mess. No, I look like a moon in those. And yet, <laughs> men footballers <laughs> throw themselves on the ground oh. when someone like tickles them. near them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. That is a very lazy rhetoric, Hannah. It's a bit more nuanced than that. They're that, running very fast. Yeah, very there's still fast. a lot of diving princesses. There is a lot of diving as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. That's all from us this week. Thanks, as ever, for listening. How amazing were all those birds? Blimey. If you fancy hearing more from the Richardson Walsh Dream Team, then our Sunday charts will be right up your street. With more hockey chat, a veer into football, and some nattering about what it's like to be gay in the sports world, and how that's changing for the better. Slowly, but changing nonetheless, thank fuck. 
Next week is Gigcast Week and it's one we recorded at the Lowry in Manchester back in May with me, Hannah, Lou Conran and Julie Heisman-Dalsh, within which you'll learn, if nothing else, what not to put on a child's badge. Fancy seeing us in front of your faces? Sure you do. Our next gigs are up at the Edinburgh Festival and crikey Moses, they are crackers. We've got two stand-up shows on August the 13th and 14th featuring the cream of the lady crop from the fringe and also two in conversations, one on August the 12th and one on August the 13th. The first has Lucy Porter, Aisha Hazarika and Sharon Rooney and the second features Louisa Omelon, Janine Garofalo and Sue Pollard. Bloody hell! Information for these and all of our gigs can be found at www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. If you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe. And if you are subscribed and wondering what else you could do to spread the standard issue joy, then please tell a pal to give us a listen and maybe rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks muchly. We bloody love it when you have a natter with us, so please say hello at Standard Issue UK. And you can follow us individually. I'm at Mixter Noonan, Hannah's at That Dunleavy, and Jen's at InspiraGen. Until the next time, stay frosty. Standard Issue for all women.